Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. David Cambry is known as the godfather of legal operations, a moniker he earned in-house at Giants Aon and ADM, and it's followed him ever since. David is unique in that he has also held roles at the world's largest law firm, as chief services officer, and is currently at one of the big four accounting firms as managing director of legal operations, overseeing modern legal. I can't think of another person who has been a leader on virtually every side of the value equation in quite the same way. I've known David since his time at Aon, and we've crossed paths on multiple occasions since. It was great to catch up with him and learn how his experiences have coalesced into his current view on the profession and the legal marketplace. Listen in to today's conversation to discover specific challenges he encountered along the way and how he gained acceptance for the concept of legal operations within large organizations. How in-house legal leaders should sort the options in an increasingly diverse marketplace and what is meant by modern legal and how he hopes to achieve it. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I'm joined today by David Cambria, who's the Managing Director, Legal Operations, Innovation, and Modern Law Practice with PwC. Thank you for having me today. Oh, thank you for joining. I really appreciate it. Let's start with this simple question. The term modern law is starting to get traction in the industry. I know Microsoft refers to their innovation efforts as modern law. What does that mean in the, your parlance, in your world? What, what do you mean by modern law practice? Yeah, I think it's a fair question. And it's one really that I adopted from uh, Bill Henderson and the work we do together at iFlip. But for me, uh, it's about driving the evolution of thoughts, behaviors, and actions that unlock new value in the legal ecosystem. And that comes in many flavors. It comes with big eye innovation, little eye innovation. It comes through kind of collaborating across the wide array of skills and professionals that are in the legal profession to really solve for the legal problems, the business problems that oftentimes have a legal aspect to them for our clients and then for law firms and their clients. That's a great point you made. I think a lot of folks in the industry don't appreciate that what clients are trying to solve for are business problems that may have a legal overlay. Yeah, absolutely. At its core, I mean, that's that's what I think a lot of the focus really is of corporate law departments who are more forward thinking. It's really about, I do one of two things, right? I either help create value for my organization or preserve value. But oftentimes that value is equated or tied to what is the impact on shareholder value and what is the impact on my overall business and how they make money and why they exist in the world? What What is their why and how can I enable that? So you've had one of the more fascinating careers in the profession. We've had leadership roles in-house at a big corporation, at a very large Amlaw 10 law firm, and now at the big four. Give us a general overview of what lessons do you learn? How have these institutions been similar and how have they been different as you've tried to adopt your thinking? I'd say one of the things they all share is and. Part of the reason I was attracted to each of those organizations is a passion for doing things differently and more effectively, however that happens to be defined in that particular organization. And so I would say the similarity is that desire, that underlying desire to do what they do differently and better, You know, empowering their organizations to think and work differently, to advance innovations 
that will result in professionals delivering the best outcomes to their clients? And then how do you develop and deploy the expertise? I think that's how they're similar in nature. It's a kindred spirit, as is a lot of the folks in this kind of legal ecosystem who address these particular issues. And I think you share a lot of that as well. The difference really is the mechanisms by which you try to deliver and influence that. So on the corporate side, the influence comes from being a buyer of those services and being a buyer in the legal space and trying to motivate and encourage the vendors that serve corporate law departments to embrace some of that change and be a partner in that change. On the law firm side, it was really about being more responsive and reactive to your particular clients. How do you continue to show and differentiate yourself as a service provider in a way that not only resonates with the legal advice you're giving, the doctrinal knowledge, but really all of the other kind of things around that in terms of the delivery of the legal work? And now today at PwC, I have an opportunity to actually deliver both, that we have expertise outside of the U.S., where we have lawyers and expertise, but we also have a practice that is built on teaching other corporates and other law firms about how to kind of cross the chasm between the actual work you're doing and the delivery mechanisms in which you do it and how you do that. And how do you operationalize that? And how do you really build that in the most effective, scalable models longer term? And so that's kind of the pieces, but it is all centered around that common desire. And I think that's what keeps all of these opportunities interesting for me. There's an argument out there in legal commentary about how much of an alignment is there between buyers, legal services, sellers of legal services when it comes to delivering services differently. You've been on sort of both sides of that equation, and you were in unique organizations, obviously, that had particular focus and passion for thinking differently about the organization. But how do you see that alignment of interest fleshing out And how did you begin to bridge it from each side to achieve the results you've achieved over your years? Yeah. Look, I still think there's a fair amount of desiring to want to be more aligned than we are, but there is a fair amount of talking past each other because I think the incentives are still misaligned in terms of uh, what is the ultimate goals of the business that I'm either in when I'm providing the services or what are the ultimate goals of the organization I'm in when I'm buying those services. And so That misalignment, while it creates a mutual interest and desire, because we are kindred spirits, that misalignment, I think, creates either unnecessary friction or or creates a set of solutions that actually don't necessarily fit for the short-term or near-term goals of the organizations we happen to work for. And so I think what I'm seeing is not an evolution in terms of how quickly we do that, but an evolution in a broader thinking about okay, for these things to have staying power longer term, we have to continue to think more broadly. Part of it is that we're seeing that the next generation of lawyers who are becoming junior partners and who are becoming leaders in their own right within their organizations, they've grown up with some of these thoughts that the partners before them hadn't had to the extent they'd had or haven't had clients who pulled them that way as quickly as we would have liked. And so you start to see that they are trying to evolve this longer solution that that has had a longer bake, but it is starting to bear fruit. And so I think that's part of what we tend to see and what we're looking at out there. But I think it goes back to the incentives and really what is actually driving the behaviors, what is actually driving, what motivates us every day to solve for different problems. I think the other piece of it is, and the reality of it is, as we continue to pull on levers that affect the market as we continue to try new solutions, 
we have to then move on and evolve in our solution. So after the market crashed in 2008, you saw a large increase in the number of in-house counsel who joined law departments. And we saw law firms do a lot of efforts around being more cost-effective and efficient. But the reality of it is after, say, a post-COVID world, those levers aren't available anymore. Why? Because 2008 already had happened, that people already had made those changes and, and made those adjustments to their staffing models. And so while the complexity of our organizations continues to grow, some of the solutions we had in a way actually don't exist. And that's going to continue to happen as the legal profession evolves. And so part of the other piece as to why we're seeing this is that we still have to figure out ways to invent, to get to scale, to automate, to systematize some of the things within law. And a lot of the levers we pulled in the past just aren't there because we've used them before. I absolutely agree with that. And one of the components of these new solutions and new new designs is the willingness to bring in different voices into the solution, both implementation and design, whether they be technologists, whether they be project managers, whether they be process analysts, et cetera. I know, I'm sure you've seen, as I've seen over the years, an increased willingness on the part of lawyers to listen to these other voices. From your experience, what's been the role of multiple disciplines in creating value and solution sets for the end user? Yeah, I think the role of these cross-functional expertise has really been a function of the work that's being created that when you think about the complexities of what we are managing in a corporate in-house law department, they are continuing to grow. I think Dan Katz calls these folks complexity engineers, lawyers, and they really are managing complex problems and solutions that ultimately, it's not just about good lawyering. It's not about telling me what I should or shouldn't do. It's actually telling me, how do I go about doing it? And some of these things are quite complicated and quite expansive in terms of their scope and in terms of the speed in which I need to do it. And so I think a lot of it's been born out of the necessity of the particular regulations and it's been born out of necessity of the speed in which I have to do these things just to stay relevant and, and on target with the different risks and challenges my business faces. I think also there is an ever-growing understanding as we do more of these things as an ecosystem, we become more sophisticated and start it starts to build on itself. So this is a discussion that we've been having over the last, what, 20 plus years? At least, so, at least. At least. And so as we get more advanced in our thinking, we also then need to bring in more expertise to help further our thinking. And so that's why you start to see more of this cross-functional approach where you have our technology folks, our process folks, our finance folks, et cetera, et cetera, really continue to drive these things. Because I think people realize that this is a team sport and that you have to bring in all of those different people to the mix, especially as we get more sophisticated in how we want to go about solving these problems. Have you found a difference in the willingness to treat this as a team sport in any of these segments in which you have worked? Yeah, I'm generalizing here, and I'm not really speaking about any one particular organization. But I would say when you think about legal operations in a corporate setting, you are a non-core function of a non-core function. And so when you think about how do I get the attention of my cross-functional team within a corporation, there is a willingness and there's a desire. But I would say that willingness and desire gets deprioritized against some pretty big projects and some pretty big initiatives. And so if you're lucky enough to align what you're doing to some of the bigger initiatives, you tend to get licked. 
But otherwise, what you'll tend to see in in-house law departments is you're really fighting for the attention and resources of an organization where they're focused on how do you continue to drive shareholder value. On a law firm side, generally speaking, what you tend to see is there is still this dichotomy between lawyers and non-lawyers where there is a desire to have some professional capability, but unless you can tie it to a specific client need, it oftentimes is harder to talk about broader brush approaches to rethinking or reimagining the legal ecosystem or the law firm's delivery mechanisms. And so that becomes a little bit more of a challenge on that perspective, because again, you're fighting as against lawyers versus non-lawyers, but also you're fighting against inertia that, hey, we're going to do something driven by what the client asks for, what the client wants, rather than innovating more broadly. So innovation does happen, but it just doesn't happen at scale. I think the folks best positioned to kind of deliver on this, I think, is what the big four delivers and what PwC delivers, which is, you know, these are organizations that are actually purpose-built to putting together cross-functional teams to solve difficult problems. They're purpose-built to have scale, where they have centers all around the world to deal with clients' needs all around the world. And they've actually done their hiring intentionally around cross-functional teams. And so when you start to see them in the legal space, they're purpose-built for this. Now, having said all that, depending on the organization you're in, there's also a question of, well, are they going to be agile enough to actually meet the client where they are? Are they going to be fluid enough to continue to evolve as the market is evolved? And I think that still remains to be seen. But I think they stand the best chance where you have that cross purpose of that capability, but also some of that brand recognition and that brand awareness where I think you can get a general counsel in a warm and dry place more quickly than you could without that brand awareness. You know, it's interesting here you say that. I've argued that point now for a while that one of the great advantages the big four have is this purpose-built multifunctional attitude. Because it is, in fact, I have found it challenging to create that attitude from scratch within a law firm, as I think most, even with the greatest willingness of lawyers to participate in clients. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And then I think the other thing is that for the big four, it is a business focus for them. For a lot of law firms still, it is a thing we're going to try to do. And yet when things get hard, let's revert back to a different way of doing it. or It's a thing where, as you know, from your time at law firms, but my experience as well, law firms are a place where everyone has the ability to say no, and no one has the ability to say yes. And so when you start talking about some of these broad range initiatives, it really becomes a challenge to get the leadership for an an extended period of time to kind of drive a law firm through some of the variations of change and some of the kind of discomfort that comes with change. Whereas Again, for some of the big four, they remain very focused on this is a business and we're going to try to drive the business and do what we can. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but we're going to have the ability to throw technology people and some of our other underlying infrastructure at it to try to solve for it. So I think that's where I think they're uniquely positioned, not only to help their corporate clients, but help law firm clients work through that because it's another tool in their tool set that law firms can use to kind of help deliver to their clients. Right. Let's back up for a minute. You went straight into sales, if I understand it correctly, after law school? I did. I worked with West Publishing. That's not a typical move out of law school. How did it come about that you chose to go into sales? And what did you learn that's helped you in your amazing career? Yeah, thank you. So a couple of things. One, you have to realize when I graduated law school, 
going to a career services office and saying, I want to do something non-traditional, they basically looked at you like you had two heads. And so <laughs> um, like, why would you have just spent all this time doing what you've done in law school and tell me you want to do something different or non-traditional? So they said, well, the legal publishers are an option or you can go into a nonprofit. And so I ended up at West Publishing at the time was a private organization that was really on the cusp of developing computer-aided legal research. And part of the experiences I learned there were a couple of things. Number one, I happened to learn that the way in which you're going to influence a very skeptical set of buyers is really about showing how can I make their lives better day to day and how can I tie that to whatever their business objective was. And so if you're a law firm and you were buying those types of services, it's all about speed and responsiveness. It was about, can I do it in a cost-effective way that might be cheaper than just throwing bodies at it or help me scale faster? If you were at the, in a law department, a lot of that was really about, okay, how could I actually tap into those resources and provide some of that knowledge to share for myself without having to go outside to get that expertise? Or how could I use that as a stepping stone to make a more informed decision when I'm actually going out to engage outside counsel? But I think ultimately that the skill was really about, well, how do you continue to envision a longer term view of how legal could be different? And I walked through several organizations at my time with West who were struggling with that question, but who were being bolstered by in this golden age of, I think, investment in the legal space where both Lexus and Westlaw were both privately held at the time. Uh, this golden age of investment in both gathering adoption in terms of influencing the market, in terms of making investments that had a long-term play. And I think that's really what also led me to this kind of understanding that to drive the change, not only do you need to be persistent, but you also have to front-end load some of the investment, I think, to invest enough resources in it that you can continue to drive people's not only hearts and minds around it, but to change habits in terms of how they went to the market. And so. Both West and Lexus were very good at talking to the incumbents in the legal space, but they invested very heavily in the law school market as well. And that law school market really did a couple of things. One, it, it got brand attention and brand loyalty very early on, but it also brought a whole series of evangelists year after year after year after year into the law firm that said, you know, there is a better way to do this. And instead of saying, well, we're not sure how to do that, they had a whole bunch of skilled practitioners who were saying, these are the tools we need to move forward. And that's really what accelerated a lot of the growth in that computer-aided legal research. Both of those companies ended up going public, as you know. And for me, I think that was one of the, the sadder days for legal innovation, because as a public company, there were requirements that they act on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis and that they report to the market. And I think it slowed the level of innovation. It slowed the level of investment that you hadn't seen in the years prior to that. And so those are all the things that were helpful in terms of my purview and scope about solving problems more broadly going forward. You know, it's a fascinating point you raised. As I was listening to you talk, you and I are roughly the same generation. And I remember the Lexus and Westlaw computer-aided legal research coming into the law school and coming into the law firm and asking where the Lexus terminal was and where the Westlaw terminal was. You hit on it earlier, as currently going on, that generational impetus can't be understated as a force for change in the profession. No question about it. And I think, and that's why you continue to see these evolution of legal tech adoption, why you continue to see the evolution of the different tools in a toolkit to try to solve for the legal problems. And I think it's, it's fascinating to watch. It is. Now, 
you've been referred to in some places as the godfather of legal ops. You may not have been the actual first legal ops person, I don't know, but if you weren't, you were, if not the first, the, one of the very first. And I've argued that the emergence of the legal operations profession is one of the key drivers for change in the industry. Share a little bit about your perspective of what it was like to sort of start that profession and how you've watched it build over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, and I would say there were people before me for sure. And that name uh, is one I, I embrace and I welcome and I'm thankful for that. But there were people before me as well. Watching the the evolution of the role has been really very, very satisfying on a professional basis. I remember starting off on the role that you had a combination of folks who were in the role as consultants. You had a combination of folks who were in the role as professionals in-house, which was more rare than it is today. And then you had a whole series of folks who were really bright-minded individuals who were lawyers within their organizations who happened to know how to turn on a copier or happened to know how to use a computer. And so they took on a more technical role and they called it legal ops. For me, I think one of the great career satisfactions has been this notion that legal operations isn't a role, but it really is a set of disciplines that we apply to the legal ecosystem in terms of delivering legal services that it really needs to permeate throughout everyone within my law firm or my law department, these sets of disciplines to help be an enabler to change and an enabler to driving some of the, um, the different innovations we try to do within legal. And so that has been a great piece of the puzzle. I'm heartened by the growth in the space, and I'm heartened by the fact that there are departments that continue to add these roles as a leader through some of the change that they're trying to do as a leader and a coach in terms of how do you impart these disciplines on a more regular basis. And I've been glad to see that. I think we still have a little work to do. And that work is really about how do I level set the difference in sophistication in terms of legal ops professionals and approaches. And so one of my goals and objectives is to continue to work with folks about creating a certification program or a program where I have a common set or a core set of teachings and understanding. I continue to work with the work that iFlip does because I do believe that some of this does need to start as early as the law school level to try to get that growth and adoption longer term into the, these disciplines. And so it's been wonderful to watch. I uh, continue to want to be a part of it. And I continue to be grateful that I was uh, one of the early adopters in terms of trying to bring these disciplines to bear. And it's, it's really been very fulfilling professionally. What are some of the key disciplines you're talking about that comprise this space? Yeah, look, some of the disciplines are around a business and financial discipline, whether that be internal business and financial discipline, or whether it be disciplines around outside counsel management and vendor management in terms of who am I going to bring to bear? Some of it's around organizational design. You know, what do my organizations need to look like or how do they need to be set up in a way that helps drive the initiatives? Project management expertise, expertise around understanding technology and technology capabilities and how can I plug those into the natural way in which people work so that they become an extension or an accelerator of the work they're doing, not a replacement for that. Disciplines around knowing how to influence and to work an organization so that you can get things done, so that you can get the attention you need within your specific organizations to get them to embrace the change and see a longer-term vision. And also just kind of the business planning side of it, which is all about not only having a, an idea of where I want to get to but also 
What are the steps I need to do strategically in order to enable that or enable that change to get adopted and embraced more broadly throughout the organization you work in? So those are some of the disciplines, you know, and they, they take on different flavors and different names, whether they be uh, technology implementation or preferred panel programs or, you know, uh, knowledge management or contract lifecycle management. But all of them are really around a set of core principles that are common in not only these things, but across the businesses more broadly. You talked about technology. Where do you see the role of technology in the changing environment of delivered legal services? There's been a lot of hype about technology replacing lawyers and, and or enabling lawyers or whatever it may be. How do you suss out the role technology should be playing in advancing legal service delivery? Yeah. Look, at my point of view is technology will continue to be an accelerator to the delivery of knowledge work and the delivery of the judgment that lawyers are trained to do. And I think it's a key component because our worlds are just getting ever more complicated. Our worlds are getting ever more complex. And yet the time in which we have to deliver these things or the number of resources we have to deliver these things continues to get compressed and be challenged in terms of getting to scale. And so I think that as I look at it, my view is that technology serves as an accelerator, but it also serves as a mechanism by which we can get people doing higher order things where we can continue to automate and drive some of those things that are, while important to our organizations, just aren't as high risk and maybe shouldn't be in the hands of lawyers all the time so we can automate some of those things. I think just as we evolved early days, when I first started my career with different tools and tool sets, it actually created more work. So too will the evolution and the continued evolution of technology really continue to drive more work to those things which humans are really best at, which is that kind of knowledge work, that judgment, but it will just continue to serve as an enabler. We just are going to see the scale continue to grow in terms of how much we can ingest in any one time. So if you're a buyer of legal services, you've got more options, whether it's where do I invest in technology? What type of staffing do I have internally in terms of the various disciplines I have, the different vendors that I have to pick from, law companies, law firms, big four. I assume one of your roles at PwC is to work with corporate legal departments and help them with their strategy and the way in which they approach the market. Do you have general principles that you advise people on as a, as a general matter and how to navigate this increasingly diverse set of options that they have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first question we always get is, tell me the right solution, right? What's the right mix? And I'm going to just be real honest. There is no right mix generally. There's a right mix for you and there's a right solution for you and we can help you get there. But there is no one right answer. And oftentimes it's a combination of several pieces of technology combined with a methodology or a framework, a philosophy, if you will, about how you're going to apply those technologies. And so the principles I generally start with are really, what are some of the key components or things you're trying to solve for that are very important and will drive shareholder value? And then how can we help enable those? That should lay out really what the goal for some of your system implementations and tools should be. The other thing people hear me talk about all the time is that really there should be no unnatural acts to the extent that you can avoid them. And by that, I mean, it has to be a natural extension of how people are working today. Because if it's not a natural extension of how people are working today, what you tend to see is adoption rates very low, or you tend to get a lot of cranky people that you're trying to get to change, and it's just not going to stick long term. And so 
a lot of our discussions around technology are how do I layer those pieces of technology with the way you do work and your ultimate goals to really create a package or a suite of things that will help you deliver on your goals and objectives of these technology implementations. So those are some of the broad philosophies. I think the other piece really is about how do you actually create scale to what you're doing in such a way that what you're doing is additive to your ultimate goals. And so while there may not be one solution to solve all your problems, are there a series of solutions that when I stitch them together, that allow me to create a more proactive story to my C-suite or my business units about the value I'm creating? Those are some of the pieces that we focus on. I think when you focus on the value you're trying to create and the solution, then you focus less on the tools and more about what are the pieces I could bring to bear that will get me those outcomes to then better tell the story to my ultimate clients or constituents. And so I think that's a better way to go because then we don't get stuck on or too enamored with one piece of technology or one idea that I ought to do AI or I ought to do RPM or I ought to do natural language process. I don't get stuck on that. I get stuck on, well, what's the purpose or the focus of why I'm doing this and how can I best do that? And so those are some of the, the philosophies we tend to think about and talk about when talking to our corporate clients. David, as we, as we wrap up here, it's, we're about out of time. You've accomplished enormous things during your career. What challenges are left for you at this stage? What are your current goals and aspirations? Boy, there are a ton of challenges left, right? Which is why we still do this and get up every day. For me, I think the continued evolving of how we think about delivering legal services as a group remains a challenge. That it isn't just about this two-player world of law departments and law firms or clients and law firms, that there's a whole host of expertise we can bring to bear and deliver in a very systematized way to the needs of the clients in the corporate setting. That, I think, still remains a challenge. How do you actually get people's mind share and how do you get them to try to adopt and try these new things as a way to deliver differently the work they're doing? That remains a challenge. I mean, I think also just the profession itself continues to evolve. When you look at what law schools are doing or trying to do around the education around these things, how that there are now masters and graduate programs in data analytics and some of the legal work, you can get a master's in law, but it's not actually a law degree. It's about how do you service the law department. I think that remains work to be done and having some consistency around what are the teachings we have around that remain very important. And I think also, I as we've seen around the world, having legal service providers involved in the legal marketplace has been generally very good. And so as you start to see state bars experiment with that type of experience here in the U.S., that remains very interesting to me, not only from the work I do, but also from an access to justice perspective, from really getting, reducing friction within the legal system more broadly. And so just watching that remains very interesting and keeps me kind of thinking about what the art of the possible could be. I think there's still quite a bit to be done. And then I think lastly is technology evolves, technology advances, and the things you see out there where people are applying that to legal issues remains fascinating to me. It was fascinating to me early in my career when we were talking about some of the stuff that I was doing at West Publishing, and it still remains fascinating that there are a number of approaches we can still take and get after that will carry us forward into the next generation of these folks who tend to also want to solve these problems. Well, PwC is very lucky to have you, David. You've had a tremendous career, and the things you see going forward are fascinating, I think, to all of us, particularly those of us 
that have been around this block a few times. There are some great challenges. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I'm delighted to be with PwC and I'm delighted to have been able to spend time with you. So I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.